Welcome back to Pinpoint History, everyone. Episode 28, Go East, Young Man. Before I start the episode, I want to apologize for the inconsistent schedule these past few episodes. I took a bit of a vacation to just uh, recharge, and then unfortunately, as I was getting back into the swing of things, I caught COVID. So, I'm recording this episode with COVID, so hopefully I don't sound too plugged up. took a hot shower, and I drank some tea to decongest, and because I don't want to keep y'all waiting for another episode, I recorded this for you. I do this for you, the people. (laughs) The last time we were together... Alexander had been forced to march south to the Balkans to pacify Greece once more. The young king would force peace on those who dared to rebel against him. After giving Thebes a chance to surrender peacefully, a chance the city did not take, Alexander decided on no half measures and sieged the city, and when he was successful in taking the city after a brutal sacking where 6,000 people lay dead and the remaining 30,000 citizens were sold into slavery, with a few exceptions, and the city raised to the ground. The destruction of Thebes set an example that no other city-state wanted to follow. Athens sued for peace, and Alexander magnanimously granted it. The submission of Athens and the destruction of Thebes meant that Greece was quite unsettled, and now also the Balkans had been dealt with. It seemed that Philip's dream of invading Persia would now become a reality the father's dream to be achieved by the son. With all pressing issues now dealt with, Alexander and the army packed up and went home. It was still the year 335 BC, and there was much in the ways of preparation that needed to be done. The most pressing issue Alexander would need to deal with for this invasion of Persia was the supply line. Money and supplies would have to be transported across the Hellespont and into Asia to reach the Macedonian army. It was a true testament to the logistical capability of the Macedonian state and the necessity of a well-planned, well-executed supply line. There's a military maxim that I've come across a lot. Soldiers win battles, logistics wins wars. Seems to be an apt description of what we're looking at here. As the seasons passed and summer gave way to autumn, and autumn in turn became winter, and winter gives us spring, the campaign season of 334 BC would begin. Alexander said his farewells and began his date with destiny. In Alexander's absence, it was Antipater who would govern the day-to-day affairs of Macedonia. He would be Alexander's regent, ruling for Alexander. This was a crucial symbol of Alexander's trust in Antipater. It seems Antipater's swift thinking in getting Alexander declared king in the aftermath of Philip's death had cemented itself in Alexander's mind. And, to Antipater's credit, the old man would rule faithfully for Alexander and crush a local rebellion in Greece while Alexander was deep in Persian territory. Alexander probably had an emotional farewell with his mother, and while Alexander would correspond with his mother throughout the invasion, he would never see her in person again. Alexander would never see his siblings, mother, or Antipater again, nor would he ever return to Greece again. Alexander would find his fortune in the east and die there. His remains would never return to Macedonia either. This knowledge is gifted to us with the privilege of hindsight, 
because this was a no to Alexander or any of his contemporaries. The king was only 22, and if luck prevailed, he would return a conquering hero. And so, Alexander left Macedonia, never to return again. The army Alexander raised was a large force of men. By the time Alexander engaged in the first decisive battle of the invasion, he had an army between 40 to 50,000 men. I'm settling in to split the difference and guesstimating around 45,000. The army corps was the beating heart of Macedonia. The elite pike phalanx with the hypaspists and various infantry from the Hellenic League and the Balkans. The cavalry was made up of Macedonian elite, Thessalian nobles, and various allied cavalry, once again from the Hellenic League in Thrace. All in all, 40,000 infantry and 5,000 cavalry. Quite the formidable force. Not all 45,000 crossed at once, and there was still an invasion force of men that Philip had sent all the way back in 336, two years ago, which numbered around 10,000 men. So the crossing was undertaken by the large amount of 35,000, and Parmenian orchestrated the main crossing from the city of Cestus to Abydos, while Alexander and a small group of homies sailed from the city of Elias further south and towards the ancient city of Troy. If you remember me talking about Alexander back in episode 16, you may recall that Alexander was a huge Iliad fan and slept with a heavily annotated copy written by Aristotle himself under his bed at all times. Basically, Alexander couldn't pass up the moment to geek out and check out the ancient battlefield of the Homeric epic. As the ship was about to reach land, Alexander dressed up in full armor. Can you imagine if the ship hit a wave and he fell into the sea in full armor? That's invasion over. Anyways, Alexander threw a spear onto the shore. Now, we can view this in a few ways. Firstly, when reading the ancient texts, you can never really be sure if something is true or if it's some kind of allegory. Here are the possible takes. Firstly, the story is not true, and it's just a way to throw some more shine on Alexander. Or, Alexander really did do this as a symbolic act of declaring war. Or, once again, you can take the middle road that some geeked out nerd in the past wrote it as a literary device to impress all the homies. You decide. After seeing the sights and making some sacrifices, they met up with Parmenian and began to get moving. Now, Alexander has a pretty big problem to deal with that I haven't mentioned. You see, funding this invasion costs a pretty penny, and Alexander basically had one month before this entire venture and the Macedonian kingdom became insolvent. You see, when Alexander became king back in 336, the nobility did get some concessions from Alexander as part of the agreement to support him. The Macedonian kingdom gained revenue from these sources. The mines, the natural resources of the kingdom, their large timber trees and pitch crucial to build the ships of that era, and well, of course, taxes. So back when Alexander was crowned king, 
he literally abolished taxes, which I'm sure you can imagine made him massively popular. Practically, it may not have been the smartest thing to do, but they would make do. The chief source of funds right now came from the mines and future sources of funds that would come from the conquest of Persia. The Roman senator Cato the Elder put it like this, Bellum si ipsum alet, I hope my Latin did not offend anybody, and the English translation means, the war feeds itself. The reality of Alexander's invasion meant that he needed cash now, and while Alexander would present the image of liberating the Greek cities of Asia, he would need their money. You could hand it over nicely, or he would take it from you. That's the reality of conquest in a nutshell. And many of the cities would ally themselves with Alexander, as it became clear which way the wind was blowing during the invasion. So now, you can get a feel of what was on Alexander's mind as he marched the army forward. I know I just gave a grim and stark account of the nature of conquest, but the first decently large city Alexander demanded submit to him declined. The city wasn't worth the cost of taking, and so the army moved on. And Alexander may have been bribed by the city to keep it pushing. So, moving on ignominiously, Alexander continued on. The Persian Empire at this point in time knew that Alexander had arrived and invaded the empire. Darius III, the current king of kings, did not react immediately. At this point, the invasion was going to be handled by the regional leaders of the area, who were already gathered together in the Persian city of Zelaya to discuss the Macedonian problem. The gathered leaders would also be commanding the raised levies to fight against the invading Macedonians. The three main Persian leaders were Arcites, Arsamis, and Spithridates. As they convened the war council, one of the people present was a man named Memnon of Rhodes. Memnon was a Greek who worked for the Persian Empire. He was given command of a unit of Greek mercenaries. Luckily for the Persians, Memnon was very familiar with Macedonia. Memnon has been in the background during our time together in various stages of the narrative. Memnon stayed in Macedonia during a stint of exile he was intimately familiar with Philip II, and he apparently had several conversations with the young Alexander. By 340, Memnon had returned to the Persian Empire and assisted the siege of Byzantium during its siege under Philip. So Memnon knew how the Macedonians fought. He understood how they thought, and most importantly, he had an understanding of the war-making capacity of Macedonia. Memnon guessed the cost of the invasion was bleeding the Macedonians dry. So he advocated not to confront the Macedonians, but to pull back their forces, go full scorched earth, leave nothing for them, and retreat into the country's interior. Eventually, the Macedonians would need to retreat. The Persian leadership did not receive this plan well, and viewed Memnon with suspicion because of his Greek heritage. They decided against a passive strategy and decided to meet the Macedonian army on the field. The Persian governors joined their forces together with Memnon and marched out to meet Alexander. While in hindsight, 
The decision to meet the Macedonians in battle would be proven as the wrong choice. The decision to go full scorched earth was pretty politically damaging. Arcides and Spithridates had already fallen victim to having some of their lands raided, and coincidentally or not, Memnon's estates had been spared. Politically, the Persians needed to face off against Alexander's forces to not lose face, and because at this point, Macedonian supremacy was well known in Greece. Its dominance had not yet been displayed in Persia, something Alexander was keen to demonstrate. Memnon at this point was probably the only person in the room who understood just how potent of a threat the Macedonians truly were. Memnon had also been the one to decisively check the Macedonian forces in 336 after Philip's death. And, to be fair to the Macedonians, their top commanders, Parmenian and Attalus, were recalled to Macedonia, and the other, Attalus, was executed. The Persian force was comprised of 10,000 cavalry, drawn from various regions. They were broken up into different groups, led by Arsamis, Arcides, Spithridates, and Memnon. Alongside their complement of cavalry, they would have five to 6,000 Greek infantry. The Persians were able to gather twice the amount of Alexander's entire cavalry, which gives you an understanding of just how vast the Persian Empire was compared to the Greece. Now this put two armies on a collision course, and it was much to Alexander's benefit. Alexander began receiving scouting reports of the mustering Persian army and this location and size. This was the moment Alexander had been looking for. A decisive battle would open the doors to a lot of cities. Cities with valuable treasure and money and supplies that the army could arm themselves and armor themselves with. A decisive battle would provide all that and then some. Alexander moved out with a force of roughly the same size to meet the Persians. Alexander brought most of his cavalry with him, so around 4,000 and about 12,000 infantry. The two armies sighted each other a day after Alexander set out to reach the Persian forces. The Persian army had settled into a strong position across the Granicus River. It was already mid-afternoon by the time the Macedonian army encountered the Persians. Alexander deployed into battle formation, and a stir-off ensued for a while. The feeling among Alexander's commanders was to hold off on the attack. Parmenian rode to Alexander and counseled the young king to hold their position and not attack. The Persians were posturing. They didn't want to fight. Parmenian was certain that they would retreat at night, the difference between the infantry being the deciding factor. Then, the next morning, the army could cross the river uncontested and fight on favorable terrain and do what the Macedonian army does best. Alexander decided since he had already had his enemy in sight, it would be a shame to let them go. Alexander decided he wanted to fight, and that's what they would do. The Macedonians were lined up in their usual manner, infantry in the middle, flanked on either side by the cavalry. Across the river, the Persians were lined up with their cavalry, their Greek infantry unit being held back a few miles. The Persians probably did not trust their infantry to fight fellow Greeks, 
so they held them in reserve. Alexander now had his chance to strike the first blow against the Persians, and he would take it. Alexander prepared his army to advance, the phalanx being led by its capable commanders, the left wing of the cavalry led by Parmenian, and the right wing led by Alexander. The elite Persian cavalry units moved from their positions to the Persian left, across from Alexander. The young king was resplendent upon the field of battle, and he was easy to pick out of the crowd. Alexander was the prime target of the Persian army. Killing Alexander stopped the entire invasion right in its tracks. Alexander made the first move. He sent his infantry across the river to establish a crossing point for the rest of the cavalry, led by Alexander. This initial force sent by Alexander faced stiff resistance. They had arrows and javelins raining down on them as they began to cross the river, and then upwards over the riverbank. From there, they met with a portion of the Persian army and engaged in vicious combat. More units of Persians began to move forward to push the Macedonians back. Already, the satraps, Arsimis, Arcites, Spithridates, and Memnon were in the thick of fighting. Alexander decided this was now his chance to lead the charge of the rest of the companion cavalry on his right wing, 2,000 men in total. Alexander led his forces across the river, but they didn't attack straight ahead. They turned to attack the Persian force in the center, which they began to push back. By doing this, Alexander was now open to attacks on all sides, mainly the center and the Persian left. Parmenia attacked at the same time as Alexander's unit. Alexander's infantry was still crossing the river as Alexander's companion cavalry was fighting for their lives. The enemy had pressed up against the Macedonians, and while everyone was on horseback in this area, they were so packed together that they fought like infantry, static and unmoving. The fighting was fierce, and Alexander was the prime target. Alexander was fighting in the melee, just like everyone else. His shield had already received many heavy blows. More Persians began to join the fray, and Alexander rallied his men for a second charge. As they charged, a Persian threw his javelin at Alexander's face, who managed to stop it with his shield. This man was named Mithridates, and he was a brother-in-law to Didrius. Alexander rushed the man, attacking him with the javelin he had just blocked only moments before. He stabbed Mithridates in the chest, and the point broke off. Despite the grievous wound Alexander had just delivered, Mithridates was still alive, and he pulled out his sword to stab Alexander. Alexander took the splintered javelin and stabbed Mithridates in the face with the shattered end of the javelin, which, ow, can you imagine? As this happened, another Persian hit Alexander in the head with his sword. Apparently he hit Alexander so hard that a part of Alexander's helmet broke off and received a pretty deep cut on the scalp. Whether it was from the helmet cutting him or the sword blow, we're not entirely sure. Either way, the blow had disorientated Alexander, but he managed to get his sword out and kill his assailant. Once again, as this was occurring, Another Persian attacker, this time one of the Persian commanders, Spithridates, attacked Alexander from behind, 
Alexander didn't see him coming. And just before Smithridates landed his killing strike, a Macedonian cavalry commander named Cletus the Black saved Alexander, cutting Smithridates' sword arm clean off at the shoulder and killing him shortly after. Alexander was immediately reinforced with a unit of his bodyguards surrounding him. All of this chaos had only been happening in the beginning stages of the battle. The infantry was still crossing the river in dribs and drabs as this occurred. Alexander was fighting valiantly, like out of a Homeric epic, but the reality was he had nearly died three times in the last few moments. The crossing was a disorganized mess. Parmenian had been right to suggest holding off on battle, but that time was past now. The infantry had now crossed the river and was forming up, and it was here that the battle was won. The Persian cavalry began to flee the battlefield, and the Macedonians moved deeper into the plains while the Persians escaped. The Greek infantry under the Persians did not flee the field, and the Macedonian cavalry encircled the Greek mercenaries while the infantry lined up in front of them. The Greek mercenaries asked for mercy, but once again, Alexander was in no mood for clemency. The Macedonian army attacked the mercenary Greeks and killed upwards of 3,000 of them, 50% or more of their number. The rest were enslaved and sent back to Macedonia to work in the mines to fund the war effort further. Alexander had done it. Though he had successfully defeated the Persians in a pitched battle, the battle had been a haphazard event. But despite the battle's intensity, the Macedonian casualties were surprisingly light. With a grain of salt, only 115 Macedonians died in the fighting, compared to roughly 6,000 for the Persians. These numbers are probably inflated on the Persian side, including injury as well as deceased. While the Macedonian numbers don't even consider the number of injured men. Even more importantly, some of the highest ranking leaders among the dead Persians fell in the battle, the Spithridates and Mithridates dead. Arsamis, Arcides, and Memnon of Rhodes would live to fight another day though. Alexander looted the Persian camp and took some valuables. While today's battle did not solve the immediate need for funds, it did give the Macedonians more wiggle room. Many of the engagements Alexander's army will take part in moving forward will not be as chaotic as this. In fact, there will be a methodical process of the army doing what it does best. This battle really highlights to me an eagerness for Alexander that despite knowing better, he still jumped into the fray. This is also why I felt it important to tell you the story at Delphi. Alexander nearly died on multiple occasions during this battle putting himself into unnecessary situations and making a risky decision to fight personally. While it further cemented in Alexander's mind that he was indeed invincible, it did not set a precedent for taking risks when it came to battle. Alexander would engage in taking strategic risks, but not a decision like this. And despite it all, Alexander had won his first battle in Persia pretty decisively. So, We'll leave it here for now, with Alexander in the midst of his first victory. I have maps on Instagram, 
So you can see that at pinpoint underscore history, and you can email me at thepinpointhistory at gmail.com with any questions you may have. Follow me on Twitter at History Pinpoint, and you can find me on Facebook. I'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, let's get it.